You're about to join Jerry Parker, Maritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and I, Niels Kastrolasen, where we each week take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. For long-time listeners, our conversations are intended to keep you focused and inspired to continue your trend-following journey. And if you're new to the show, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and all the past episodes that you may have missed. Morris is out this week, down under, not with the flu, but in Australia, so he'll be back with us hopefully next week. Jared, just you and me, how are you doing? Doing well. I'm in New York today. It's a little cold. Not used to this cold weather being from Florida, but uh, good to be with you and see you. Yeah, absolutely. Likewise. I was out for the week skiing, um, so uh, didn't pay that much attention to the markets. Uh, but of course, we can't um, not notice that U.S. equities uh, hit another all-time high uh, this week. I was just going to say, as did the dollar, but not quite. But it's certainly uh, certainly um, flirting with recent highs, uh, the dollar index, that is which created a little bit of a headwind, potentially, I guess, for the uh, for U.S. commodity exports, particularly in the agriculture sector. Uh, we didn't see massive reactions so far, but we did see things like coffee had a pretty decent reversal uh, to its downtrend with a big up move this week. Um, uh, as mentioned, the equities went up early in the week and then softened off Thursday, Friday, but actually gold was pretty good at keeping it close to its uh, recent highs as, as I guess, as a safe haven asset. So on our side, I would say that it it was a positive week for sure, um, solid week, uh, mainly driven by the equities, um, as it has been for a while. But um, the currencies with the stronger dollar was, uh, was a nice uh, contribution as well. Uh, fixed income, metals, meats, energy were pretty mixed, uh, and I would say overall flat uh, from what I'm seeing. And then we had the grains and the softs, where we saw a little bit of a pullback in performance uh, this week. So um, that's kind of what I managed to uh, to observe from from the slope, so to speak. What about you, uh, Jerry? What did you uh, notice this week? Yeah, pretty quiet week. Um the grains, the wheat doesn't know which way it wants to go. Um, so I think I'm long one and short another in that sector. Uh, just one comment. I don't really like, uh, you know, I, uh, I know the rest of the world likes to talk about the dollar. I don't really talk about the dollar because it sort of belies the fact that you and I trade uh, lots of different currencies and they're, you know, uh, versus the dollar, just like all our commodities are versus the dollar. So, uh, you know, I've got some long positions in some of the currencies, some short positions. The euro and that uh, concoction of an index called the dollar is heavily weighted. So uh, whatever the euro does is probably going to, you know, dominate uh, the the dollar index. But uh, I'm still long some uh, shekel. You know, I saw that in the news this week. That's the by far the strongest uh, currency and uh, there's uh, Russian rubles up there. Maybe India is is strong, and then 
most of Europe is weak, along with uh, Aussie, Canada, and New Zealand. But uh, Mexico is pretty strong, the peso, and lots of fun things going on in the currencies. And so I have a tendency to look at them like I do the stocks. And uh, because I can afford myself with uh, uh, lots of diversification with uh, the single stocks, I'm long some, short some. So it's I'm never... Uh, during a really solid week in the stock market, I'm always lagging behind because I have I'm, t- I'm too diversified. I don't mm. have Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon, for instance. Yeah, no, I mean I think that's a great point actually, um, because this is exactly the same on our side. Although we only trade the major currencies and all against the dollar, you're absolutely right. The positions are mixed, and so when I said the dollar, you're right. The dollar index is really the one that is so heavily weighted towards the euro. So I guess it's the euro that's having a bit of a weak period maybe more so than the dollar being super strong um cool i guess uh, we had lots of re- reactions to last week's uh, conversation it was fun it was good it was uh, passionate um and uh, of course uh, tesla uh, contributed maybe also to a lot of the debate um to uh, to that so so that was great we appreciate all the comments and feedback we got so uh, keep that uh, coming why don't we think about, or talk about some of the uh, topics that you came across during the week uh, in your uh, in your Twitter feed and uh, see if there's some articles we can dive into. We have a few questions as well, of course. And as always, you can send them to us at info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to get them on the first show uh, available. Um, but let's jump into some of the topics. I know there's some uh, a few good ones that we might be able to spend some time on. Yeah, last week was fun. Uh, I don't, I don't anticipate getting into quite a uh, big discussion this week. You know, I think Moritz is the one who gets us going. He, he pushes us, and uh, without Moritz, I think it's going to be more gentlemanly today. Uh, anyways, I, I read another good article yesterday about uh, from Morgan Housel, and it's called "History Is Only Interesting Because Nothing Is Inevitable," and he says nothing that's happened had to happen or must happen again. Specific events are always low probability. Their surprise is what causes them to leave a mark. They were surprising because they weren't inevitable. Uh, and I think, you know, uh, this is kind of why trend following works is because we're always um, getting in these trades that are surprising to everyone. Who, how can uh, Tesla rally so much? No one saw this coming. This is not part of history and you can't predict these things. And so even though we look at a back test and we look at results and with a systematic rules-based approach, we're not predicting uh, that the markets are going to have these same moves and fundamental, the fundamentals are going to be the same um, in the future. It's going to be much different. Uh, and we just, uh, that's why we're making money all the time from things that have never occurred before. I think that's a great point. I mean, it's like when when you hear people talk about how many of these past crises that the central banks have, to, you know, seen ahead of time, and and the answer is none. And I think that's really something that we have to um, uh, kind of accept that we just don't have that ability. And what happens, of course, after the crisis, people will say, "Oh, yeah, sure." I mean, you could see it coming. Um, interestingly enough. I think there's a lot of people right now who are seeing the next crisis coming, right? I mean, the, it's if you look at some of the massive debt issuance, if you look at, um, and I'm not an expert here, but if you look at certain valuations, if you look at the fact that you have negative yielding junk bonds and you have, I don't know, 13, 14, 15 trillions of bonds in general having negative returns, 
I'm sure once you know when the next crisis come you know start uh, and and play out, some people were saying you know yeah sure, but you could see it coming. Look at all these factors, um, but I wonder how many investors really actually use this period where something is brewing, whatever whatever it might be. As you say, it's not going to be the same as last time. It'll be something new. Um, something we probably haven't even thought about right now, but I just wonder how many investors, um, you know, are spent using this time preparing themselves for this. Because the more I hear, the more I see. When you see these flows, people just keep putting money into strategies, as far as I can tell, that are not very liquid. That where you end up locking up your money for a long time, you pay you know, fixed fees uh, without necessarily getting any return um, or linked to their return, et cetera, et cetera. And um, I, 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 yeah, I'm, I'm puzzled by why it is that we are setting our things, or I think people are setting themselves up to be disappointed when the next, whatever it's going to be, crisis comes. Yeah, the article is really, uh, he goes on, it's really long and it's really a, a good article. He talks about how no one could predict, there was a lot of smart people uh, trading and investing. Uh, no one could predict the depression and the stock market crash in the 20s. And um, so how fruitless it is to think that they were dumb or that we're smarter, um, but uh, you just you know can't predict these things. Um, there's a friend of mine on Twitter he tweeted this week, I'm trying to fit some hypothesis to empirical fact that um, the financial media is net bearish, yet stocks rise. Uh, and he goes on to say, like, um, don't these people kind of realize that uh, if the reason the stocks keep going up is because is because they're so negative on stocks. <laughs> so stop being so negative and you'll get your wish. And uh, I think Twitter and uh, social media, a lot of it is just like a thermometer. It's it's not causing stocks to go up, but it's measuring the temperature of people. And uh, the more uh, you just have to give in and give up. And uh, maybe uh, they're trying to pretend like they're so even-handed. I'm just following the facts. I'm I'm just uh, evidence-based. And uh, stocks are going to crash. Well, you know they've been saying this for so long, and they won't go down. So just like relax, leave it alone, and uh, you can't predict. Uh, just you know. If you're not going to follow the trend, at least quit embarrassing yourself with all this negativity because you're sort of feeding this rally. And uh, anyways, it's I'm sure it's frustrating when you don't look at things in terms of trend. Taking Sometimes just taking small losses, as frustrating as it can be, is uh, the least of your problems if you miss out on a big trend. I think that the way you, uh, you know, what you're saying about the media, I mean, I think the media is a very interesting uh, plays a very interesting role in in general. I was listening on my way back uh, from this uh, ski trip. I was listening to the latest um, episode on Macro Voices, where Eric uh, has Chris Cole actually on the uh, on the podcast, and and I, I suggest anyone should listen to it. Chris just produced one of his big uh, write ups. Uh, which I think is very thought-provoking, and people should uh, also um, get a copy of that. But there was another guest that came on later in the episode uh, that I was listening to, 
And uh, I apologize, but I, I don't forget, I, I forget his name. Um, and I only kind of remember some of the things he said, but triggered by what you said about the media, he was talking about certain statistics that when you look at them right now, they definitely resemble some kind of depression, right? They're similar to what we saw in the two previous depressions in the last hundred years. But his quest, the question he raises, which I think is an interesting one, if the media doesn't talk about it, does that mean it doesn't count? Because he was then referring to some unemployment numbers, some recent unemployment numbers, where he was saying that the media had described uh, the November number, I think, was, you know, um, you know, like a slam dunk. This was just an incredible number, right? And there was a like a January unemployment number was something, you know, where you saw a surge uh, in 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 um, in jobs being created. But when you look at a chart, it doesn't suggest anything like it. It's just pretty ordinary numbers. But because the media talks about it in a certain way, it kind of becomes, oh yeah, that's the way it is. But then again, on the flip side, if you don't talk about things in the media. Does that mean it's it doesn't exist? It it's not there anymore, and so the role of the media is is really interesting. And I think you're right about the fact that there are so many people saying that stocks, you know, we're going to have the next crisis next week, and it's all doom and gloom. Yet the market just ticks along um, very smoothly. Yeah, it's um, it's really interesting uh, how that how that happens. Uh, the the media and the the logic, you know, uh, paying attention to prices, and um, you know, someone said this week that uh, the price of the prices are the, is the only indicator that doesn't deviate from itself. And uh, you know, it's just really humbling to sort of uh, make yourself follow prices above all else. It's really just uh, unethical to uh, AI and machine learning, and it's got to be something better than just us doing this silly thing of following prices. It's funny, I mean, even some of the people we've had on the show, and I have a lot of respect for them, but but some of them really, I would say, have been bearish on these markets for quite a while, and they've been very vocal about it. Uh, so there's no secrets there. And, and I'm just thinking, these people are super smart, very gifted, um, but instead of having these views that where they always want to try and pick a top and come out with all these... Uh, you know, um, evidence of now it's turning and all that. As you rightly say, why not just look at the price? And if you, you know, when the market has traded off for five, seven percent, which would be more than it's been doing for a long time, uh, maybe with the Q4 of 18 as, as an exemption, then you go short. Why try always to try and pick the top while the market is going in this relentless uh, bull market, which for all we know, could continue for another year. Who knows? Yeah, because, you know, history, you know, we're looking at history. This is evidence, but it's not evidence. History is the past with different facts, different situations, and history is not a good guide for the future. Well, wait a second. You're trend following. You did this back test of history. You want to use all the data, regardless of how far back. <clears throat> I thought, aren't you paying attention to history? Not in the same way. You know, we're not paying attention to the history, the fundamentals that drove the markets. We're just using a systematic rules-based approach, using price only, buy here, sell there, moving averages, breakouts, strength, relative strength. Uh, and so we're 
looking silly sometimes because the valuations are out of control. We've never seen interest rates this low. Certainly, they've never been this low. So now's a good time to sell. No, the trend is higher. And so we're sort of using history, but not in the kind of uh, <clears throat> in the way that uh, most people want to use history. History is not a good guide to the future. The future is full of surprises, things that have never happened before. Uh, longs and shorts, and the CTAs are profiting. How did you know this was going to occur? Well, we didn't. But these trends all start with a breakout or, <clears throat> and you know, we lose on 60% of the trades. So uh, it's not like we have a good, we're good at predicting anyways. And maybe that's part of the problem in a sense that what we're saying to people is that we use historical data to, uh, you know, our strategy is based on historical data. And, and I think maybe people think that, oh yeah, if we've seen it in history, it must repeat itself and therefore you're going to do well. But the reality is that the secret to trend following, so to speak, is the fact that it's adaptive. It just uses uh, history as part of the input. But the truth is that our systems will react to whatever happens in the future the way it happens in the future, not the way it might have happened in the past. Um, and so... Yeah, maybe we're doing ourselves a little bit. Or maybe it's 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 um, it's confusing for people to think about us looking at historical data in order to make money in the future when we all also say that and 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 rightly so, the future is not going to look like the past. Uh, you know, the breakouts might, and what the systems that right. in the past might, uh, but it's kind of crazy because, like, we're designing these systems and we're saying, look, use all the data. Okay, I can see that. Now, trade all the markets the same. Really? Yeah, in the longs and the shorts. So we'll have a system <clears throat> that got us into, let's say, Tesla, which is a great trend-following trade. It's an outlier <clears throat> so far, and it's, you know, it's gone up a lot, and it's um, bought the breakout, and we're holding on to this open trade, and the trend is still higher. But the system that uh, we use on Tesla uh, you know, Tesla wasn't even around over the test period. And it may be dominated by what worked in the currencies or uh, the commodities, you know. Uh, and so some of these uh, approaches and, and parameters that we use, you know, they're being influenced by the longs and the shorts and, and uh, <clears throat> you know, markets that are not Tesla. So I'm trading Tesla based upon what worked the best over all the markets and throw the shorts in as well. And people are like, well, that can't be right. <clears throat> it's not fine-tuned to Tesla. Tesla has its own personality and its own history. No, it doesn't. I mean, yes, it does, but that's not a good guide to when it, should I buy, when should I sell, how should I approach these crazy trends that I've never seen before. So you're using methods his, uh, that are based upon history and mixing them all together, the longs and the shorts and all the different markets, and trying to apply it to a brand new, relatively speaking, company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it works. Well, I mean, it's the best thing to do for the future. And it's and I think it goes back to um, some of the things we've talked about in the past, and, and I know a lot of people have spoken about And this, is these uh, human biases. And of course, we say a lot of trend following can be linked back to uh, you know behavioral finance and all of that stuff. But one of the biases we have as humans is this precision bias. So if you ask someone, so what do you think S&P is going to finish at the end of the year? They're going to be incredibly precise, you know, 3,875 and a half. That's going to be their prediction instead of just saying, oh, somewhere between 3,500 and 4,000. It's not precise enough. So I think you're right. I think people 
deep down want to believe that if you want to trade Tesla, you have to develop something specifically, so precisely in you know tuned to how Tesla trades. And yet we're saying, no, no, you know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and you know, it's hard. You know, I hear this a lot. Uh, stocks are different. Oh, oh, stocks are different. Shorts are different. Oh, yeah. Shorts have different blah, blah, blah. And stocks, oh, my gosh, there's specialist or there's flow or there's these terms. I'm like, really? Because I'm just looking at those trends. Some of the best trends I've seen over the past you know, 10 years, 20 years are in stocks. So somehow the best market out there are these stocks, FANG stocks that have gone crazy and made so much money. And the trends have been fairly smooth and bigger trends than we've seen in our markets because we're underperforming. And yet, maybe trend following doesn't work on stocks. Uh, I mean, it's only worked on stocks, really, uh, for the past you know, 10 years to a large degree, and, and the bond market as well. So mm. there's always a reason out there where not this time is different necessarily, but this market is different. You can't expect this with the shorts or the longs or the stocks. And it's just like, okay, watch me. I'm not going to change. Um, I'm going to follow these trends. And, you know, usually it works out pretty well. It's the, certainly the best uh, method I've found, you know, if you just adopt this whole idea that you can't predict. No one knows where the markets are going. Yeah. Speaking of uh, another thing that uh, I was triggered to think about from the interview I listened to with Chris Cole and, and Eric Townsend, uh, when you talked about stock has been the only thing, maybe with bonds as well, of course, that has worked the last 10 years. And I don't know how he did it and how he measured it, but he does go on record saying that, so they've gone back, I think, 100 years to do some big analysis creating kind of the perfect portfolio to use uh, a term we've used before um, but you know a hundred year portfolio but one of the things he said that in their research they found that the last 10 years has been the most mean reverting uh, decade uh, or period uh, throughout the whole uh, set of data um, and and the most difficult one for, for, for something like we do trend following. Um, so if you've been able to make some money in the last 10 years as a trend follower, given the conditions that we've seen uh, on a diversified portfolio, not just trading stocks and bonds, uh, you you would have done well. Um, so that was just another thought that came to mind when you talked about um, these things. And as good trend followers, though, you shouldn't, uh, you should only look at how your system or how your performance has been on all the markets and... Um, longs and shorts and the stocks or commodities, currencies and bonds, it don't slice them up into longs versus shorts or stocks versus everything else. So it's perfectly fine to, uh, and preferable to throw them all in and say, you know, this is how we performed. Um, <clears throat> we require, trend following definitely requires as many markets as possible. It's gonna be much better the more markets you trade um, than fewer because of the low win rate and the reliance upon uh, outlier trades. And so it's only right that we quote our performance and look at it in terms of all the markets and not try to slice it into different uh, sectors or markets. So that's, sure. it's very tempting. Yeah. Well, that was Sir Morgan Housel, um, kind of uh, tempting us into a deeper dive. What else uh, did you see uh, this week? So I like this um, interview that Meb Faber did with uh, Tim Hayes from Ned Davis. Um, 
I have some experience with uh, Ned Davis following them over the years, and it's um, a firm that is uh, into market research, all the markets, but especially stocks, and a fair amount of technical research, um, numbers-based, quanti quantify the market in lots of different ways, not just trend and price, but they do include some trend and price. So I was particularly looking forward to this interview, and um, he talks about uh, some of their indicators, that 50% uh, of the indicator is price-based and 50% is sort of uh, quantifiable tech, uh, fundamentals, let's say, based. And he talks about the indicator and says, uh, 20 times in 30 years, this indicator has gotten to a danger level and the market has continued higher. If you relied on non-price indicators in uh, 2007 and 9, you could have very well have gotten caught on the wrong side of the moves. <clears throat> and he says, remain trend sensitive and be careful about emphasizing any one indicator uh, because something can enter the picture. But if it's going to be an indicator, it should, be, it should definitely be a price-based indicator because price is what it is. Price is unique in that it's the only indicator that can't diverge from itself. So building on Morgan Housel, once again, these indicators can be dangerous because they're indicating that now's the time to turn the light switch on or off. It's not really as much probability as um, we're being told now that it's time to reverse our position uh, because these indicators are present when bad things happen or good things happen. And, and uh, so it's much different than the way we approach the markets. And once again, he's just reemphasizing it based upon their research that, uh, you know, the indicator can be way early and the market has more room to run. And so mixing in uh, some humility and some of your trading with price trend is going to keep you on the right side of these moves when the, according to these fundamental or value indicators, it may be irrational. But people can be irrational and the trend can keep going and it's decent money. Why not make your money on when people are irrational as well? And maybe the final analysis, CTA is only in trend only works. Uh, We've made all of our money illegitimately because the markets were not rational. Okay, whatever. Uh, I'll take that money as well. Sure, sure. No, I mean, uh, when you talk about indicators and, and, and indicators that can suggest things uh, that are about to uh, run into difficulties, yet it continues. The, the first thing, uh, the first one I, I, I that springs to mind is relative strength index. I mean, how many times have you seen the relative strength index hoovering around 80 or 90 thinking, oh, it certainly can't go any higher and just continues to go up. And suddenly you have something called divergence where the market continues up and the actual the strength goes down and you're kind of completely screwed if you try to, uh, you know, use that. Um, so you're right. I mean, again, the, 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 point, the point is, and uh, in my opinion, that, you know, if you think a market is going to go down 50%, well, it's going to go down 5% before it gets to 50. So why not just wait for it to go down 5 first, and then you can jump on the bandwagon. I mean, it's it's not that complicated, um, so to speak. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, I haven't uh, listened to that uh, episode with MEP, um, but um, it sounds like it's worthwhile to do for sure. Yeah, over the years, I've uh, followed Ned Davis. I've visited them. I've heard Ned Davis speak in person uh, 
and um, I got a little intrigued with maybe trying to find ways to improve trend following, add in a few other things. And uh, I know once I heard him speak in New York City at luncheon once, and he gave a long talk, and they have lots of numbers and indicators, and they just can look at so many different ways of to, to measure what the market is doing and the underlying health of the market. That's another cliche. Uh, and then he, I remember him uh, giving this talk for 30 or 40 minutes, and he sat down almost right in front of me at this lunch table and said, yeah, that stuff's good, but uh, sentiment and trend, that's all I look at. I mean, that's the most important stuff. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad I was here, but, you know, it's uh, seldom do you do you hear anyone able to stand up and make a credible case or even desire to make a credible case that uh, your trend is really not your friend when in fact that's what everybody sort of sees you can uh, and I've said before you know with artificial intelligence or machine learning I'm sure at the end of the day if you just put in a little bit of trend it's going to make all of those systems as well kind of perform a little bit better but uh, so to finish up with this uh, you know where we are today, uh, there was one more tweet from our friend um, Jesse Felder, who we've had on the podcast before, about uh, indicators, and uh, it's evidently there's something called Hindenburg Omens, and uh, I'm not sure what it is, but uh, you can check it out, and the title of this was, A New Cluster of Hindenburg Omens Betrays the Bullish Case for Stocks. While an individual signal has very little value in forecasting a stock market crash, as some seem to suggest, a cluster of signals can be valuable. And for most trend followers, yeah, we're not keen on one indicator or a bunch of them. Uh, and then I write, uh, would a clustered omens backtest yield rules that outperform trend following, a moving average crossover? Omens have appeared just before corrections, but what are the costs when they've been false indicators? You know, they keep you out of big trends. So let's just add them up. Do, do they have any predictive value? What is the historical significance and value of these omens uh, when you put them into a systematic approach? The probability only tells a partial story because um, if they predict 60% of market turnarounds, what about the other 40%? What if you miss those and you have these crazy outlier moves? So yes, the omens, maybe they're, they're good at predicting, but when they're wrong, they fail so miserably and so spectacularly that you end up making a lot less money. You know, you can be very um, bold with the trailing stops and stop losses. And, uh, you know, oops, I was wrong, but I made more money than you. So uh, I think rather than continuing to uh, write articles about or re for me to read these articles, I'd like to see people kind of backtesting these indicators and seeing if it beats moving average crossover. Yeah, I'm sure we would uh, love to uh, to, to see some uh, evidence of that. But of course, it goes back to this thing about, you know, it it's a great story, right? And again, I'm not suggesting necessarily that the media has... Uh, you know they love these stories as well, but I'm not blaming the medium then because usually these come from from analysts and and and, and other people uh, uh, when they come out with these uh, statistics. Um, so I think we're back to this uh, point about if you make something sound you know intriguing or if you make something sound complicated, um, I think people gravitate towards that. 
Uh, the fact we've been saying for the past, you know, 40, 50 years that what we do is, it's not magic. Um, I think what we've forgotten to emphasize in, in saying that trend following is not magic is that what trend following does to a portfolio is magical because I think that's really what it is. But before, because we, we keep saying that what we do is, is relatively simple, it's just not that interesting. Uh, and the only thing that we get from it is that people say, okay, but if it's that simple, we shouldn't pay for it. So let's just pay 50 basis points and, and that's it. Uh, so we've kind of been hit by a boomerang, I think, uh, in uh, trying to be very truthful and honest about what we do. Um, so, uh, yeah, maybe we need to uh, think about a different approach to uh, to selling ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I know when I first got in, interested in investing, I was in my early 20s, and I would watch these TV shows. And uh, the two things I remember was I was intrigued by gurus. These are people who are telling me what's going to happen in the future, and this is really exciting. They kind of know, and I'm like, whoa, this is really cool. I need to uh, follow these people. And it's much more <clears throat> sexy and interesting if you can buy into the idea of following really smart people who can predict the future. And then number two was uh, they're very negative. And so, oh, yeah, being very negative, that attracts people as well. You know, uh, not a positive story, not uh, optimism, or uh, but being able to predict and being able to call crisis and uh, doom and gloom, it really does uh, end up on the front page more so than good news. And uh, people who are boringly saying, look, just follow the trends. I mean, well, anybody can do that. I can do that. Why should I even pay you or listen to you? But whether it's the most profitable and safest way to manage your assets and attack the markets is sort of irrespective of how interesting it might be. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, we can just look at the newspapers in general. I mean, very few positive stories makes the front page. It's always something about fear. Uh, that's how we see most people being sold uh, and promoted, uh, certainly also in the uh, financial news media. Um, and um, that's just the way it is. Nothing we can do about that. So those were the tweets, essentially, uh, if I uh, understood you correct. That was the last topic you wanted to bring up now. Okay, fine. We've got a few things we can talk about. We've got a couple of questions, and uh, we've got some other topics that we have uh, discussed in the past. Uh, first question is in from Michael. Uh, Michael says he has two questions this week. Uh, but uh, let me read the whole uh, uh, message here. But I would first like to say thank you for a very good show last week. Episode 74 could be part of the Systematic Investor Greatest Hit series. I'll be listening to that many more times. Anyways, here are the questions. Uh, would one or all of the hosts uh, releasing a real trend-following ETF create too many potential problems for their day job, uh, I'm not entirely sure what that uh, what that question is for, Michael. And maybe actually, I did ask you during the week what it was, and and maybe you said, "Well, let's just skip that one." So I've completely forgotten about that. So let's skip to the to the next question. Could a trend following system be improved by eliminating the SPX stocks, given how challenging it is to trend follow a trend following system with the SPX being a long only trend-following system. I wonder if the performance of a trend-following system would be better if it was restricted to stocks outside of the index. Depends upon the, the, the diversification you get and is are those, and then I, I think uh, not, uh, not trading an index is, is better. Just trade the individual markets in the index. 
you know, you'll be long sum, short sum, flat sum. So it's a combination of indexes are limiting your uh, diversification and your outlier trades. And I just obviously I don't think that um, adding a bunch of markets together into an index is as legitimate a systematic approach as, as um, trading all the components of that index with your system. Uh, and you're just missing and blowing the opportunity for more diversification from a systematic point of view. And then um, <clears throat> I can come up with a much better diversified group of stocks than any index, which is probably going to be cap weighted. Um, so there's no reason to trade these indexes. I've said that a million times. Yeah, no, I, I know you have. And actually, it's an interesting thing, right? Because we often say to people, certainly to investors, you should never trend follow a trend follower, right? You shouldn't buy the highs and sell the lows. You should, you should just own it. And so it's kind of an interesting thing, I think, the question about, you know, should you not trend follow, not use a, an index uh, as the SPX as uh, in your portfolio? Because essentially it is a trend, a, a long only trend following system to some extent. So um, I can see where you're coming from, Michael. But I think, as as uh, Jerry said, I mean, he he also believes that you know getting individual stocks into your portfolio uh, gives you more diversification for sure. So thanks for this. Uh, next question is uh, from Chris. Um, uh, he also says the past episode was one of my favorites, not just because of differing of opinions, but because it had me thinking, which is always good. So thanks for that, Chris. Um, then okay, he, oh, so I think in in now that I see the question, I think uh, Chris is taking over uh, Morris's role maybe to get us going uh, today. Um, Jerry, he says, please forgive me uh, in term uh, in my ignorance in terms of vol targeting. I'm not in the field, and it is not a term that I'm familiar with. I'll be reading more about it though. Um, so I think maybe uh, Chris wants us to talk a little bit about how we understand vol targeting, but he does go on and say, in the episode, Moritz had an explanation of vol targeting and it hit home because it is how I size positions. I use ATR to help determine my sizing. If in a position and the ATR changes dramatically, I adjust my sizing. But if I understand Moritz, this is exactly what vol targeting is. Am I understanding that correctly? So what, because you are, you and I might even also have different opinions about what vol targeting is, but how would you address Chris's uh, query about uh, this? First of all, I'd say that uh, Moritz does not provoke me. I was, it was a total joke at the very beginning. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't need anybody to get me going. Uh, another human being. I mean, these topics can get me going. It's something like vol targeting. But yeah, I think... Uh, uh, it's proper to, when you do a trade, to um, risk the same amount in every trade and size your positions based upon the volatility so you can do that. And I do that with all my trades and always have. And then as, uh, as you get into this trade, like Tesla, for instance, uh, it's a great example of uh, the volatility kind of goes crazy. It really jumps. The initial vol is so much lower than the current volatility. And so do you sort of hang on to that open profit and let it dominate your performance your, and uh, make you these big, huge swings? Or do you, uh, prior to the trend reversal, or maybe at the all-time highs, the volatility is uh, gigantic, 10 times what it was when you put it on, 
but it's at the all-time high, you say, okay, I'm going to cut back some because I don't enjoy, uh, number one, these portfolio swings coming from one market. And so I think that uh, <clears throat> when you have a big trend and a big profit like Tesla and reducing that sum, quote-unquote sum, uh, probably is not going to hurt your profitability dramatically. And of course, for the Tesla trade, it might actually help it. Uh, who knows? It's a guess. It's just not based upon your system. But I th and I think uh, what I don't uh, do is I don't uh, do this daily. You know, every single day I increase or decrease my positions based upon this change in the ATR or the volatility. So uh, it's a long, drawn-out topic. And so um, I think uh, part of it is something you shouldn't do if you're trend following because you're you're happy that this trade is more volatile, more profitable, crazy, making all this money. It's an outlier trade. It's dominated your past performance. It's a reason we make money. So you don't want to screw that around and, and uh, take small profits. But then on the other hand, you know, you may want to reduce it somewhat. And uh, in my opinion, it's somewhat of a discretionary move. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, so vol targeting, I think has, um, in, in with different people, probably different meaning. Um, the way I understand and the way I think about vol targeting was that some years ago, I would say that some managers uh, that, that I saw their material from would start talking about how they would vol adjust their positions every day to to have the portfolio at a specific volatility level at all times as best as they can. To me, that's vol targeting because you're trying to stay at, say, 15% vol or 10% vol at all times. Now, there is, in my opinion, also something different, but also has to do with adjusting positions. And and certainly on our side, for, for what we do uh, within, uh, within our strategy, we don't vol adjust because we don't have a fixed target of volatility, but we do have a risk budget. And the risk budget can change. So we're not targeting a certain specific risk budget, but on a daily basis, we have to adhere to whatever the budget is. And therefore, we may, from you know, on a daily basis, not necessarily every single position, but there are certain positions that need to be adjusted accordingly. They could also be adjusted because the signal is getting stronger or weaker. So we don't really care about the volatility. You know, the volatility can be 20%, it can be 30%. That doesn't matter. But we certainly have some risk parameters we need to stay within for, you know, on, on, on a daily basis based on how we, in our case, how we interpret the opportunity set and, and the trending environment. Um, because to, to some extent, you want to allocate the right amount of risk at the right time. You don't want to be at full speed during a period of where there's absolutely no trends. Vice versa, you want to have full speed during periods where there are lots of trends. And there are different ways of doing that, of course. But so, so I think these things often get um um mixed up uh and then as you, as, as you say jerry then there are obviously other ways you can do that you can just look at specific outliers and say yeah you know th it makes sense to to take some off the table because clearly the the uh, atr has expanded dramatically from where it was so it's 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 playing too much of a dominant role in in the, in the portfolio and i don't see that there's any any issue with that at all so i think it's a relevant question chris i think there are a few different answers to it um but hopefully that's this gave you a little bit of color 
We'll see what uh, maybe Moritz has another explanation when he comes back that he can add to this discussion. It certainly won't be the last time we you hear the word vault targeting on this on this podcast, that's for sure. Our friend Adrian, who was at the live event in New York, uh, has a question. It's it's a kind of a different question. I think uh, I had to kind of uh, read it twice before I, I kind of got it, Jerry. So, um, but I think what Adrian is trying to get at is that when running a business, like, like uh, you know, we are involved in businesses that specifically, uh, you know, into our industry, um, there are certain things you have to say no to. It's just certain things we say, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. So he's asking, what are the two things um, you said no to in the last couple of years relating to systematic trading. So I guess he's asking what are certain cardinal things that we just don't want to entertain, so to speak, uh, in in our either our business or in our trading. Um, can you think of I can I can, I'll throw out one to begin with if you want a little bit more time to think about it. This is more of a business issue and of course I can't really speak for our, our owner, but I can but I can, but but I know this to be to be true. So I, I think I could talk about it, um, and that is a lot of people come to us and ask if we won't do a flat fee product, and the answer so far has always been no. We of course have a history of charging zero percent management fee. In forty five years, we've never charged a management fee. We only make money when our clients make money. So it's a deep, grinded DNA. Uh, or into our DNA that we always want to be uh, on the same side of the uh, of the table as the investor. And we want to participate in their success, and they shouldn't pay us if we're not delivering returns. So this flat fee issue is something that has become incredibly popular. Many managers, who, by the way, most of them, you know, a lot of them, saying that oh, this what you do is so easy, we can do it for twenty five basis points, uh, you know. So that's obviously fueled the discussion and the appetite for flat fee products. But that's one thing that can I say to you, Adrian, that that's one thing that every time it comes up, so far the answer has always been no. Well, I've mentioned on the podcast many times, you know, the t- 10 commandments of trend following. So there's probably 20 or whatever. But uh, I think um, the most important thing is to just never um, trade the markets different trade the shorts the longs and shorts the same trade all the markets the same I would never be tempted not to do that uh, I read about it and that's how I get tempted because it seems like other people are having success uh, not treating all the trades the same so I think that's a big part of it um, so I think yeah I lost my train of thought but um, that's that's a, a key and then I think, uh, oh, yeah, here's what I was going to say. And that is, uh, so kind of uh, contrary to what you were saying earlier, is t- take all the trades. I think that's like one thing that, uh, and I think that looking at vol targeting and risk budgeting and things like this, whatever stands in my way to take all of the trades in the same exact way, um, I will you know, not pay attention to risk budgeting or vol targeting or anything like that. I want to set up my portfolio. Uh, if I 
if down the road I'm perceiving that, well, you know, you could have on a lot of trades and a lot of open profit and not, uh, and your risk budget would prevent you from taking the next British pound buy, then I'm going to trade smaller. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to figure out a way. I've got to do that British pound trade every single time in the exact same way. I can't have any sort of money management overlay or risk budgeting that would prevent me from doing that next trade uh, in the exact same way that I've done it over all the years. And so if, it, if I'm going to run into those situations and I'm just going to trade smaller and maybe leave money on the table because every rare event uh, down the road somewhere, I might not be able to afford to do the next trade, uh, well, then I'm going to trade smaller so I can do every single trade. I think that is the one thing that is most important to me is that I'm in this transactional business of every time the market does this, I buy. Every time it does that, I exit. I've got to make my risk management subservient to that. The risk, the system, the buys and the sell is not subservient to money management. Uh, I'm going to do all of those trades the same way every single time, buy, sell, entry, exit. Yeah, see I got really passionate about that. So I didn't need Moritz here to get me going. <laughs> no, it's great that we've now found another one uh, who can uh, help us with that. What about, I mean, let's stay on this topic a little bit. What about from a business point of view, Jerry? I mean, are there certain things from a business point of view, you've been doing this for a long time. I mean, are there certain things where you just say, yeah, no, I'm just gonna not going to go in that direction? Um, whatever that might be. I don't, I don't have any suggestions but i think i think we have to i think we have to sometimes separate uh you know jerry the businessman and jerry the trader right and i think very few people have actually succeeded in doing both often you see the great a great trader bringing in someone who's great at running a business and and that's how they end up with a great result you've kind of been doing both uh uh for a long time so i mean are there anything from a business point of view that um you would say is is something where it's a very easy no for you? Well, I mean, I don't think it's easy. I think uh, there are many situations where you're, you, you would enhance your business, let's say, for, uh, in, um, at the expense of what I would consider to be proper trading. So I do think that you and I, we, we discussed this idea of clients, and I think that clients do prefer fall targeting. You know, they prefer, like, hey, we can give you a constant 15% volatility. Thank you. Yes, we love that. Well, you know, I think not doing that is not, you know, it's, it's client-friendly as much as uh, doing it is, but I don't think it's right. So I think you're always f uh, faced with these issues. You know, if we traded indexes versus single stocks, clients really don't want single stocks from CTAs. Um, and I agree with that, but it's it's better to trade single stocks. So I have not had a business that is as big as it could have been because I'm hard-headed and I defaulted to, well, this is one of my Ten Commandments of trading. Well, you really have a small business. Yeah, kind of. And um, uh, so I think that figuring out how to um, meet, uh, meet the clients halfway and modify, and, but I do think that some people actually do believe this. They actually believe, no, vol targeting is wonderful. You're wrong. Okay, cool. 
I don't think trading indices is a problem. Okay, cool. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility that I'm wrong or that other people actually do believe that they're not violating um, the, uh, their ideas of proper trading. So I think that uh, those are just two. I can't think of any others right now, but I'm sure there's many more opportunities to where. And then, of course, if you are really successful and really good at what you do, and then you can sort of get your way. And if you, if I was a better trend follower and making money more frequently, and I told clients, I'm going to trade these single stocks and I'm going to tra uh, I'm not going to fall target, then they would say, we don't care. Go for it. You're amazing. You're awesome. So to the degree that I haven't always been awesome, I don't get away with <laughs> doing things kind of my way uh, as much as I would like to as far as, you know, AUM goes. Yeah, I mean, I think you do bring up a good point, and that is, of course, the whole thing about, you know, um, how we um, take into account the pressure, so to speak, that we um, that we have from dealing with other people's money, right? I mean, the fact that it's not our money that we manage, not all of it at least, we have to take uh, into account how our clients uh, feel about certain things or how they may react to certain things and uh, and so on and so forth. And as, as you have and I and Moritz have discussed on many occasions, I mean, the industry that we are in have changed over the years and we do see some firms, I would say, um, rightly or wrongly, but to me it looks like they're opting for size rather than for giving people the highest possible return. So there are choices and they're painful and they have consequences and uh, it's not easy. Um, but I also think that those who have survived for decades, such as yourself and such as Don, it's... Um, I think it's because we have certain things where we don't compromise because we know that's the right thing to do. Um, but it's a balance and um, our opinions may change over the years, of course, uh, no doubt about that. But it's... Um, and I guess all businesses, uh, you know, face these uh, dilemmas, not just our little industry. Now, uh, last time, or maybe the last few times, we have talked about uh, whether trend following is better or how good is trend following on on equities um, and um, because we talk about it being better than than long only but you know what's the evidence and I just want to give a shout out to Francois who's written in before uh, very uh, kindly just before we went on air uh, he uh, sent me or maybe I saw it just before we went on air I actually, actually think you sent it uh, yesterday Francois he was just quoting a couple of people that have written about this uh, of course we we hope to have Eric Crittenden on the show soon he's one of the guys uh, but also uh, Andreas Klino whom we had on the show not long ago and also Wes Gray uh, from Alpha Architect has written about this and I think they have in their respective books some performance tables of strategies, you know, kind of momentum strategies on stocks, uh, whether they are, you know, long, short, and the way we understand trend following, I, I don't know. But but maybe that is a source to figure out uh, in terms of quantifying uh, how much better, if we believe that's to be true, uh, trading stocks from a um, trend following uh, perspective rather than a long only uh, perspective. So, um, so I appreciate that, uh, Francois. Thanks for sending that in. Um, just, those were the questions. Yeah. Uh, once again, uh, I wouldn't. I don't like the question. Like, how does trend following do on stocks? Well, I mean, how does it do on currencies? How does it do on bonds? How does sure. it do on the yen? Yeah. Uh, so. The whole point is like 
you add all these markets together, you do your back test, you have your system, and that's how trend following did. It's you don't separate the longs from the shorts, you don't separate the stocks. It's a market, it should trend. What market is immune uh, or doesn't play by the take small losses and let your profits run rules? I don't think any of them do. I think they all are subject to that. So it's kind of trivial that, well, stocks have done better, they do better um, when I slice and dice stocks only or long only. And my response is, yeah, don't do that because you want to trade all these markets and why limit yourself to anything only, commodities only, bonds only, stocks only. It's all the same thing. It's all put them all together, the perfect portfolio where you're matching uh, return versus risk is going to include all these markets, as many as possible, shorts as well, with a trend-following strategy. Yeah, no, I mean, that. of course, that is what we truly believe in, um, that, you know, getting that diversification on top of the, uh, on top of this, uh, you know, the trend-following, so uh, agree with that. Now, Jerry, um, we're about an hour into uh, our conversation. Um, we can bring up other topics or we can um, kind of uh, uh, round it off um, gently since uh, Moritz is not here. Um, is there anything you want to, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about in the past off, uh, off um, outside our normal conversations, talked a little bit about uh, breakout versus other strategies. Uh, why, um, uh, at least on my side, I prefer to breakout maybe having a more difficult time in the last 10 years or so. Um, we can discuss that or um, we can uh, wait for Moritz to uh, come back and, and join the conversation. Oh, yeah, let's wait for Moritz. It's a big topic. Yeah. Okay, no, that's fine. Um, in terms of, uh, as we normally do, we do uh, talk a little bit about how trend following is doing uh, for the month of February. So far, we're halfway. Um, Beta 50 index up a couple of percent uh, in February. The uh, Sargent CT index up 2.69. Trend index doing well, 3.4% to the good. Sargent short-term traders index is up 43 basis points so far this month. And uh, the bridge alternatives up 2.64. But all uh, indices are doing well so far this year. Um, so uh, so that's, uh, that's great to see. Um, before we finish, let me just mention that, um, that there is a new version of uh, my ultimate guide to the best investment books of all times. You can grab from the website if you haven't already. It's just a useful resource for you if you want some inspiration as to what to put on your bookshelf to read. Uh, uh, regarding investing, not specifically to trend following, but there certainly is a few books on trend following as well on, uh, on that. Um, but I think on that note, uh, Jerry, let's wrap up for uh, for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you felt you got any value from our conversation, of course, we wouldn't mind a rating and review in iTunes. It really does help other people discover the show. But from Jerry and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you in a week's time. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past. 
and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.